You can go ahead and have your Bibles ready to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, but it'll be a little bit before we get there. Some of the verses we'll look at first. One will be a reference uh, to a verse we looked at last week, and then uh, some of them are on this outline already. Bill, if there's any extras, if you just set them on the uh, railing there, thank you. I think I mentioned uh, this morning that for this weekend, my wife has been out of town. And in thinking about this message, I thought about one of the first times after we got married that she went out of town. Now, this would have been, uh, you know, BK, right? Before kids that she went out of town, and I believe the same time frame when we had our first garden. Now, for the first garden, you all know my feelings about okra, right? Heard me say them enough. Uh, The only other thing that grows in the dead heat of summer are weeds, all right? So, in my mind, okra weeds are kind of connected, okay? I don't care for it at all. However, Becca loves okra. She loves okra. That's why you all have always loved her best, right? Okay, so she loves okra, and so we grew okra in the, in, in the garden. I'd never grown it. My, my dad did, but I didn't know anything about it. And so she went out of town. It just so happened the weekend where she said, we need to pick the okra. All right. So can you pick the okra while I'm gone? Well, sure. All right, so I go out there. I don't know at what time early, um, you know, not long after she left, and took a look at the okra, and what I saw on the stalks or whatever you would call them was okra that was about this big, about the size of my thumb, and I thought, that's too small. No, we want big okra, right? In my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to give her some of the best okra she's ever had. All right, we're going to do this upright. Newlyweds, first year marriage, I hate the stuff, she loves it. So, I I thought, no, this isn't ready to be picked. And so I checked it the next day, and it was a little bigger, but uh, nope, still not ready. And and the day before she came home, I went out there, and I mean, I had some good size okra. All right, okay? They were nice and big. I was thrilled. I had this big basket full of okra. I was waiting for her to come home. I knew she would love it. I had no idea okra needed to be small. Till I looked her in the eyes, and when she saw that big basket of okra, I saw the look of concern and then a smile. Now, you all see my wife and, you know, just the kindest, sweetest person on the planet. But she has another part to her, all right? I'm not the only sassy one, okay? I'm just telling you, I'm not the only one. She didn't say anything. Instead, she got me a knife. She said, could you cut that okra for me? This is all she had to do to prove her point. She said, try and cut that okra for me. I'd appreciate it. It would have been easier to saw through a log, all right, than to cut that stuff in pieces. Yeah, you, you know, so I, I learned early on at that point, 
Not all growth is good growth. Bigger is not necessarily better or healthier. And in fact, perhaps the world of gardening is a great illustration of that, right? I, because of neglect, have brought in all kinds of massive pieces of vegetables, all right? I've brought in massive cucumbers, squash. Again, all because of laziness. It was too hot. I'm not going to get out there. It's incredible how quickly a cucumber can grow, all right? Especially after a little bit of rain. Now, I, I know it's, it's a bit silly perhaps, but I think it does illustrate what we've been talking about on Sunday nights, and that is a healthy church is a growing church, but it needs to be the right kind of growth. Again, this, this is coming in the overall context of the question, what is a, what is a healthy church? And we've looked at a lot of ideals. We've spent some amount of time here on considering what does it mean to be a growing church. The mark of growth, I think, is important. Again, like in a garden, you do want the plant to grow. You do want it to produce its fruit. You want that fruit to be of a certain size. But all of that has to be done in the right way, at the right time, and and to be gleaned at the right time in order for any of it to be effective. So I think it's helpful that as we think about this topic, we're thinking about the concept of the growth of the church in a bit broader terms, and what I would argue would be more biblical terms. And, and, And so we've been looking first at two issues, the expectation of growth, which we've already talked about, and then we've been on the evidence of growth, and I think last week we got to three of them. So if you're looking at notes from last week, or the new ones that I just gave you, uh, if we go on to the next slide, in fact, let's scroll through a couple so we get all three up there. Um, If we're asking ourselves, what would be the evidence of growth? What is it that we're looking for? I explained, in spite of the fact that I don't think numbers is the primary concern, and numbers don't necessarily tell the whole story, numbers do tell a story. They're not insignificant. They're not meaningless. They, they, they do have, uh, a, I think, a part to play in all of this. And there should be some sense, as I argued last week, where since the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and the simple command of our Savior is to go and make disciples. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, he said, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to be my witnesses. I think we can assume that the gospel still works. The gospel still saves people. The church should be making disciples. So... The number issue does matter to some degree. And once you have a collection of people who say, yes, we're aligning ourselves together, this we see ourselves as a particular local body of believers, then how often we continue to show up together. It does matter. It does matter. So numbers do matter. We talked about growing in reputation. We looked at the church at Thessalonica, how they... They were known just beyond even the confines of Macedonia and that part of Greece. They were, they were known in even, even beyond into Judea. So they, they, had, they had developed a reputation. We see how the early church developed a reputation. They were known for their obedience, their zeal, their love for one another. And though some of these qualities we'll look at in a bit more detail in just a moment, they, they, they had developed a, a, a 
biblical, what I'd call a biblical Christ-centered reputation. And then we looked at 2 Peter, the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter concludes this letter, this letter that is so full of rather stark and troubling images about judgment, the end of time, the second coming of Christ. But his last words to these believers who are enduring unbelievable persecution. You and I have no concept of the persecution these folks were facing. And his last words to them were, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we see throughout the the New Testament this expectation that we would grow in grace. And so, that leads us to number four. Letter D there. And so this is new stuff to fill out, I think. I don't remember having this conversation into knowledge, so which would be ironic if I did, and I don't know it, all right? So, number four, the fourth evidence of growth, we should be growing in knowledge. We should be growing in knowledge. So, what do we mean by knowledge? Well, in some cases, that depends on your context. In other words, it might depend, you you see this kind of idea referenced, and and again, 2 Peter 3.18 does state it, grow in the grace of and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In some cases, the reference to knowledge means uh, that you grow in your relationship with Christ. You grow in your love for Him, your understanding of what it means to be uh, a disciple of Christ. In some cases, I think it means just what it would sound like. Your first gut reaction to the reading of it. Knowledge means... Knowing stuff. Brilliant, right? The truth is, I don't know that every believer pursues this. I don't know that every believer grows in this quality, and I don't know that every church grows in this quality. But there should be a growth in knowledge, not just our relationship with Christ, that there's a growing understanding of what it means to be in Christ, there's a growing understanding of of what should be my love for Him, His love for me, what it means to be a disciple. Yes, these are important. But I think we should just know more about theology, the Bible, doctrine, uh, what, what, uh, about these issues of Christian living. I think we should be growing in our knowledge of these things. I think we should know more the longer we're a believer. Now, don't be intimidated by that. I'm not telling everybody here that, that now you need to go to seminary, all right? Even though, I would encourage you to take a, a, a look at a resource. Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, S-E-B-T-S dot E-D-U, has a lot of online courses available to the church. Free. Professors at Southeastern teaching classes on any number of subjects. Some, you know, the theological, some then maybe practical. Uh, but I, I would, I, I would uh, recommend this to you um, if you would be interested in this. Again, you can go to sebts.edu and you will find then links there uh, to it. Uh, in, in, in order to, to grow in your knowledge. So, I, again, I think this is a fundamental expectation. Now, take a look here at your notes. A couple other verses to, to look at. Look at Colossians 1, 9 and 10. It's another one of those sections of Paul's letters that we're familiar with. Paul has 
told the folks in Colossae how thankful he is for them, their fellowship with him in the gospel, and now he's going to do something he does, again, regularly, he's going to tell them about his prayer for them. So verse 9, and I've got 9 and 10 there on your outline. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, since the day we heard about who you, uh, your faith in Christ, your trust, your, your belief in the gospel, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom, spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, if you go on and read, the, if you were to read the rest of that passage, Paul then offers some other prayers. He talks about how he, how he gives thanks for them. But I think it's interesting in these two verses how, the, how, how we kind of have this bookend, two bookends here, of what he's praying for. And specifically, he is praying for knowledge. Notice it's there at the very beginning that you'd be filled with the knowledge of his will. That is practical Christian living knowledge. That's what he means by that. In other words, we, we, I pray that you would truly know how God would want you to live where God would want you to go, uh, how the Word of God would be brought to bear on specific situations in your life. I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and notice the qualifiers there in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Again, all these words have something in common. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding. If I'm going to grow as a believer, if a church is going to be considered a growing church, the right kind of growth, I think we should be growing in these areas, the areas of, of, of knowledge, knowledge of His will, of wisdom, of spiritual understanding. And then you notice the outcome. I think these things are connected. That you may, may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. And then He ends it again, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I think, by the way, that second reference is more theological in nature. Filled with the knowledge of His will. And then He closes by saying, and that you just know Him. That you would just know Him. I, I really think this is a critical need in the life of the church. Paul, Paul prays something similar then for the church in Philippi in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. We'll get to that phrase in just a minute. Your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So again, abound more and more in knowledge. I I think this is a concern. I think this should be a concern for us, church. And, and, And I'm convinced that this is one of the greatest threats to the church. That people don't know the truth. That they're not growing in these things. They're not growing in the knowledge of God's Word and in, and in and theology and, and doctrine. I, I know sometimes this can sound really cold at times. And unfortunately, there is such a thing as theology poorly taught. But really, you're not, you're not going to grow in your relationship with Christ unless you know Christ, unless you 
know God. And so to, to develop a knowledge here, I think is important. If you read in the Old Testament, you'll find one of the greatest challenges God makes to the prophets is their failure to lead the people to know the truth. He, he chastises the nation of Israel on more than one occasion that the people are suffering because of a lack of knowledge. And I'll give you one of the best examples of this. And I think this goes to show where uh, I think the evangelical world has gone off the rails. All right? You're familiar with Proverbs 29. You may not know it right off the bat, but, but you do know it. It's a verse that says, Here's how it's most often quoted, and it's an unfortunate translation. Where there is no blank, the people perish. Where there is no vision. Here's what the evangelical world has done with this verse today. This means you need to have a vision for what God wants you to do. You need to have this grand plan in mind of all the great and incredible things God wants you to do. You need to have a vision. It's not what that verse means. In fact, that's a poor translation of the Hebrew. I think that's the NIV, all right? Literally, here's what it means. Where there is no word from the Lord the people perish. So why would they translate that as vision? Because back in the day when, primary, when the primary source of information coming out was from a prophet who may have a word from God that was communicated as a vision. Sometimes that word then gets confused. But what the proverb is saying, and this is repeated more than once in the Old Testament, the problem is not that, that the people need a, a vision, right? Like some kind of grand master plan. Like, like, a, like a visionary business leader has to develop his business. That's not what the text is saying. It means the people are suffering because they don't have knowledge. They don't have the Word of God. I think the same could be said today. That there is a lack of knowledge. And then this leads then to the next one. Number five, or letter E. I think we should also be growing in discernment. I think we should be growing and discernment. These, by the way, are connected. I do connect knowledge and, and discernment, not because it's my thing, because I think the text does it. Philippians, again, look at Philippians 1.9. This is just as an example here. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. I, I love that particular way it's stated that you'd grow in all discernment. And you you can tell Paul has a particular thing in mind here for the folks in Philippi. Because then he adds to that, verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. What's he saying here? I think he's saying that knowledge and discernment your love abounding still more and more, and that love abounding in a particular way in knowledge and discernment enables you to approve the things that are excellent. There are so many churches that that suffer, and believers suffer 
for a lack of discernment. What do I mean by discernment? I, I, I mean that ability to, to not only know the truth, but to be able to, to have this kind of heresy radar detector. It's kind of how I would, I would talk about discernment. Maybe not just heresy, but discernment is this ability to, to really apply God's Word, to, to really understand what's right and what's wrong. Somebody who's discerning is able to listen to a message, read a book, and, and say, hmm, that's, that's not quite right. Now, I know no one here has ever had a radar detector, right? Because everybody here obeys the speed limit, but you all know somebody, all right? You know somebody, I know people that have had radar detectors, and in case you good people don't know how they work, it's pretty simple, right? Closer that you get to, say, one of Newburn's finest, who has a radar on you, right? It beeps, right? And the closer you get to said radar, the detector beeps faster and faster, right? Kind of a simple little gizmo. Again, I, I think discernment's kind of like that. Discernment is this ability. It should be this thing that you develop in your mind that, that through growth and knowledge and, and listening to solid teaching and reading the right things, kind of what we were talking about this morning I think this is really, by the way, a gift of the Spirit, meaning not, not something that just a few people have, though some people have it in a greater degree. <clears throat> but this is something that the, that the Spirit ministers in us. These, this spiritual beeping starts going off when you start hearing things. When you, listen to, when you listen to preaching on TV, when you read a book, and I know, I know you folks have it. I just don't think you're confident in it. Here's why I say that. Because I don't know how many of you have come to me and said, I heard so-and-so, this preacher, I read this book. This didn't set well with me. I didn't think this was right, but I wanted to know what you thought. Anybody that's ever done that, <clears throat> anytime that's ever happened to me, you've always been right. So that's just an encouragement to you, all right? You've always been right. Yeah, something's off about that. So something's off about these things. This ability to be discerning. I, I really do think part of the issue, part of the weakness of the church, the weakness in the life of the believer is, is when he or she lacks discernment. And so here's what happens in churches. I saw this just the other day. Church that, in, you're not going to believe this. This sounds so crass, but it's all adults in here, right? So forgive me if it does. I saw a church that installed a stripper pole. It was part of a sermon series the guy was doing and it was part of an illustration in all honesty I didn't want to watch the rest of it because I didn't know what he was illustrating all right and I didn't care to know in other words that was enough for me that seems to lack discernment right I've told you many times before about this trend and this is just ever growing and you see this over and over again now it's almost just kind of a common theme in a lot of the most contemporary churches where they kick off their morning, Sunday morning worship service by covering a secular song. The, the most egregious was, was when one church in South Carolina opened Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday with, uh, with an ACDC song, uh, Highway to Hell. They covered the song, Highway to Hell. They showed the lyrics up on the screen so people could sing along. I've seen churches do this with Britney Spears songs. 
I've seen churches do this with certain hip-hop and rap songs. You look at it and you shake your head and you think, where is the discernment? Why don't God's people see this? Again, I, I think there's been a downgrade going on in the church for many, many years. I think there's been this desire, and by the way, some of it may be from a good heart. What I mean by that is a desire to reach people. But you have to be careful with that, right? Because an overly aggressive desire to reach lost people may result in you then gearing everything about lost people and, and pleasing lost people so that the church then ends up suffering and becoming a place where lost people feel comfortable. Understand, church, the church should be a place where unbelievers very often don't feel comfortable. Right? So we, I, I think the desperate need of the church today is discernment. If church is going to grow, I think we should be growing in discernment. I, I, I think you should, you as a believer, me as a believer, and I mean this as a believer and as a pastor, but I think as a church, we should become more and more aware of what's right and what's wrong. We should, we should have solid ability. To detect the truth and then detect what's false. All right, let's go on to the next one. Faith. We should be growing in faith. Now we can turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you troubled rest with us, even when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the way, let's just stop there for a minute. I, that, that imagery is really striking. I'm not going to preach on that, though that would preach. All right? Uh, that little statement right there would preach. So the next time somebody comes up to you and says, the Old Testament is about judgment, the New Testament is about love, you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to them. How does that sound? Right? In other words, when they're saying, no, there's no judgment, there's no judgment in the New Testament, right? That's all Old Testament stuff. I don't know, that, that's pretty striking language where he says, they're going to come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So make, make no uh, mistake about it. Those who reject the gospel will face God's judgment. And then verse 9, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, 
because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, there's a lot in these verses, right? So, just a couple of notes here. First, this is 2 Thessalonians. You all ready for some real deep seminary stuff? He wrote this letter after 1 Thessalonians. Yes! You're already growing in your knowledge and discernment, okay? So, if you recall, Paul had some really, as we just said a moment ago, Paul had some really profound and encouraging and striking words about the church in Thessalonica in his first letter. He said, everybody knows about you. Everybody knows about your faith in the gospel. Everybody knows about your obedience. Everybody knows you have a reputation beyond just your little circle of a church. It goes beyond even just your little region of Macedonia. All the churches know about you. In fact, Paul even says in that first letter, we don't even have to say anything about you. When, when we go to other churches and we mention the name Thessalonica, they're already all over it. Yeah, we know those folks. We know about their faith. We know about their love. We know about their, their, their belief in the gospel. We've heard their story. Now, how long then do you think it would take for another letter to be written, to be sent? In other words, this isn't like email back and forth, right? So you're talking years later, when 2 Thessalonians is written, a second letter to the same church, you may wonder, all right, was that first letter, was that beginner's luck? Was that that, that early fire that new believers have, and did that, did that fire kind of fan out? Go back again to verse 3. We're bound, thank God always for you, brethren, as it's fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Your faith grows exceedingly. Again, that's a superlative kind of a statement. In other words, your, your faith is, is, is growing even beyond the ways we might normally measure the, the growth of faith. Now, it's important to note here, just like kind of the word knowledge, the word faith can mean different things slightly in its overall you know, ways it can be used depending on its context. Sometimes the word faith is a reference to the faith, meaning shorthand for the gospel. Right? So to believe the faith is to believe Christ crucified, resurrected. In some cases it might, talk, it might use the word faith to describe, the, in essence, the, the energy or the power in which someone believes the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, by by grace through faith you have been saved, All right, that not of yourselves, so it is the gift of God, so God giving grace to save and the faith to believe, then I think the word faith can also be used in, in a more general sense to talk about how as believers we should be growing in our confidence in the gospel. We should be growing in our trust, our patience, our perseverance. I think the language used here for faith is he saying, it's fitting for us to thank God for you because your endurance, your commitment to the gospel, your faith is abounding. It's, it's, it's exceedingly great. 
And again, he's saying, so your faith has grown. So think about that. They already had a pretty profound faith. I assume they did. Paul said they did. They were known all throughout. But now by the time we get to 2 Thessalonians, now he's saying, your faith grows exceedingly. I think 1 and 2 Thessalonians would be a great study here in what, what should be happening in the life of a church. There should be a growth in these things and a growth in faith. And you'll notice then the context of him saying this is immense tribulation that they're facing. And so he's telling the folks in Thessalonica, look, I, I, we, we know that you're facing these things. Don't worry. God's judgment is coming. That's the purpose of that other little part that's so striking. Paul's words here are really intended to encourage the folks in Thessalonica and to, and to say, well, we've, your faith is growing. You're patiently enduring And so he even says about them in verse 4, So we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So again, it's not only is it something that's evidence, right? It's something that they're growing in. You and I as believers and as a church should be growing in our faith. Our absolute confidence in the gospel. Now this may sound odd to say this. Think, well, yeah, of course, we should. You know, the longer we walk with Christ, the more mature we become, the the longer we as a church together are walking with Christ, the more mature we should become. Yeah, that just makes sense, right? I mean, you'd think so. But how many denominations have abandoned the gospel altogether? In other words, this isn't a given here. If you, were, if you were to write a letter like this to some churches and some denominations, you'd have to say just the opposite. Because you and I know well, you see the stories on TV, you have friends and family members who go to some of these churches that are not growing in the faith, they are giving up bit by bit, chunk by chunk the faith. They're degrading. They're devolving instead of growing. They're going backwards. Now, and what are, why are they doing it? Why are they doing it? Cultural pressure. I would argue it's cultural pressure. For whatever, whatever issue. Of course, the, the big issue of the day would be the sexuality issues that we're facing, right? This radical revolution that has happened over the last 10, 15 years in particular on how we understand, how people think we should understand Uh, sexuality, gender, identity. I mean, you talk about a big mess. And how many churches just wholesale are abandoning the faith because they're succumbing to the pressure of the culture. I think I hear some so-called evangelical leader, some so-called pastor, I think I hear one of them say every month that a guy like me, I'm on the wrong side of history. That's what they say. They'll say, we as a church are on the wrong side of history about these things. Well, I say you're on the wrong side of the gospel. And I'd rather be where I am than where you are. All right, Especially based on what Paul just said in 2 Thessalonians. I'd rather be on the right side of the gospel and the wrong side of history. What is history anyway that I need to be on the wrong or right side of it in the first place? It's an odd statement to make. But it shows that this isn't a given This is something we should be concerned about. We should be wanting to grow in faith. All right, let me give you one more. And oddly enough, we don't need to spend much time on this. It's come up in three of the other verses already. Love. The reason why we don't need to spend much time on this is because you'll be back Wednesday night. 
I have no doubt, right? Because you'll be back Wednesday night, and we're going through the chapter of love. That's how you have to say it. It's not love. You have to say love when you get to talk about chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, all right? So we'll be continuing to talk about it. But did you notice, did, did you notice it, was, it was in Philippians 1.9 that you would abound in love? And did you notice that it was also uh, in, uh, in this text as well? It says in verse 3, We are bound to thank God always for you, uh, because it's fitting your faith growing exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Paul then even concludes this very uh, concludes First Thessalonians chapter three by saying, "And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you." So another area in which you and I should be growing, we should be growing in love, our love for God. Christ, His gospel, His word, all those things associated with our spirituality and sanctification. We should be growing in our love for one another. Now again, this, this, this doesn't always work out perfectly. You know, when we talk about growth, we talk about spiritual growth as individuals in a church, it's not, it's not necessarily just this perfect straight line that always goes up, right? Unless your growth is different than mine. Maybe yours is this way. Maybe every day you've grown better than the day before, all right? Mine is a bit wavier, all right? Is yours a bit wavy at times? Yeah, yeah, I mean, growth growth is a dynamic thing, and we recognize our flesh is a dynamic thing. But really what we should be seeing, though, in our lives, if if we look at these ups and downs, these dips and these spikes, that there should be then, over the long haul, this movement from lesser to greater. Less mature to more mature. Less of of evidence to more evidence. And I think in these qualities. Now, could there be others you could add to this? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly there could be. Though my guess is we could probably corral any other concept that we were to come up with into one of these seven qualities. I think these, these well illustrate for us what kind of growth the church should be looking for. And so we should ask this then of ourselves as a church, as individuals, does, is our life marked by this kind of healthy growth? Because this, this is what a healthy church looks like. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you again for gathering us tonight. I'm grateful for this time and your word and thinking about growth. And we pray, God, you would help us see in our own lives where, where we stand in this. We want to be uh, more mature in our faith and in our love and our knowledge and our discernment and in grace and in these qualities Uh, that you have so clearly laid out for us. We want that to be true of us as a church as well. And so we pray, God, that you would continue to have your hand upon us, shaping and fashioning us as you see fit, that we would be that people that would bring you great glory. We thank you for a week that's before us. What a blessing it has been to begin this week with your people in your word, in worship. I pray, Lord, this has now set our minds on the things of the Spirit. It has set our minds on things above. As now we'll, we'll go into the rest of this week and undoubtedly be bombarded with other things. We pray, God, for you, you and Your presence and Your strength to be manifest in our lives. That we might continue to live faithfully and obediently to You. We pray, God, for opportunities that we might verbalize the gospel, that we do more than just live the life, but that we would take that next step, that we'd be bold and courageous, 
share with that lost individual the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for saving us. We thank you that we can be a part of the work that you're doing. And so we surrender our lives to you, uh, submitting them to your divine and pleasing purpose. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.